this word has kind of developed from walking through what's going on at EBC over the last couple of weeks and helping them process through that. And myself and Mark Warren, who's the pastor of Grace Capital um, Church up here, did a five-minute video that's being presented to EBC's congregation this morning to just encourage them and uh, give some direction to them out of the Word of God. And some of that is part of what you're going to hear this morning. And um, when Andy Matthews, the pastor, saw the rough cut of it, he, he sent us an email and said that he cried like a baby, that uh, the churches are so concerned and so uh, in touch with what's happening and, and so willing to serve them. It's just really blessed them. So uh, I was greatly encouraged with that. But in going through the process, you know, you should never take circumstances as just circumstances. God always has a purpose. There's always a lesson. There's always something to be learned, something for us to see and to understand. And so as that process was going on uh, in my own head and, and thinking, of what, what do you say to a church that gets hit the way they got hit? You know, uh, this is um, developed out of that. So uh, I'm beginning this morning in Mark chapter 10, in verse 42. Uh, and Jesus called them to him, the them is his disciples, and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples, but who are they? You know, in, in context, in context, he's talking to a group of first century fishermen, tax collectors, um, just common, common folk, just everyday, ordinary people. You know, the average first century Jew um, could read the scriptures because they had to do that to be bar mitzvahed. But most of them couldn't write. You know, if you wanted to write a letter, you had to hire a scribe to write a letter for you. It wasn't, you weren't taught to write in school. See, so most of these guys were highly illiterate. You know, give me a net, give me a fishing pole, and I'm happy, you know, light a fire on the shore, and I'll come and have supper with you. But I mean, that was about it. You know, these were not the brightest bulbs in the in the lamp. <laughs> and neither are we, you know. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, and look around. <laughs> Just ordinary folks, right? Redeemed by an extraordinary God. And so, <laughs> um, so why is he talking to them about being rulers and how to exercise authority? You know? I think the underlying issue is one of really domination and influence is what Jesus is addressing here, of exerting our will in such a way that we control people for our own ends or 
flip it over, of submitting our will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and influencing people in such a way that they heal, grow, and become more than we think we are. We all have our styles of influence, and most of us exercise rule over someone in some way, shape, or form. Husbands over wives. Wives over husbands. Parents over children. Sometimes children over parents. Bosses over workers. Teachers over students. Friends over each other. And the list is really endless. But the point is we influence each other all the time. And some of us have very highly developed methods of doing that with Uh, might I say, an intentionality behind it. I want what I want, and I want it, right? Give it to us. It's our birthday, and we want it. (laughs) I've only only watched it 13 times, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyways, so we influence others all the time. The question is, how do you do it? How is it that you get your own way? Today I want to present to you three models of influence that I see in the gospel accounts. Each will be brief, but they will run the gambit from domination to servanthood, to real friendship. They will be represented by three symbols to help you determine which model is yours or which one you want to abandon for another. The three symbols are the pitcher, as in a water pitcher as opposed to a baseball pitcher. I know it's baseball season, but we're not going there. Second is a basin, again referring in particular to a water basin, perhaps even a basin that the pitcher would pour its contents into. And the third would be a cup. And we all know that the cup is inclined to runneth over. Just watch a child pour their first glass of milk on their own. Right? So the pitcher, the basin, and the cup are the three symbols, and you see those on the table. We'll be utilizing those in a little bit. I want to start with the pitcher. The first ruler we will look at is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was governor of Palestine for the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' life, a ruler of the Gentiles, and a great one within that region of the Roman world. Okay? What Pilate said went. That was it. He had the last word in, in Palestine. So how does he rule? Uh, in John 19, the scene is um, the Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate. They want Jesus executed. Pilate has a conversation with Jesus, and he goes back out to the Jews, and he says, listen, I don't find anything in this man worthy of death. Cool. We're all happy with that. So then we're going to see Pilate exercise his authority. Then Pilate took Jesus 
and flogged him. Now, you have to consider what he was asked to do was execute him. So he said, well, I I don't find anything worthy of death, so I'm going to show him mercy. This is the rulers of the world. I'm going to show him mercy. So he takes him and flogs him. Now, do you all understand what that means? He takes a short-handled whip. He doesn't. He has his cohorts do it. And they have leather straps about 18 to 20 inches long. And on the end of those, they're knotted with bits of bone and glass. And Jesus, by law, should have been lashed 39 times, but the scripture says they went crazy on him and they did 40 lashes. So every time the end of those lashes come around, they bite into the front of the the ribs, into the meat, and they pull back like this and they shred the skin like ribbon all up the back of the legs, his butt, and he doesn't have that cute little diaper thing on that you see on the crucifixes. He's He's naked. He's naked, all right? And right up his back, the shoulders. So this is, this is Pilate's mercy. You have to keep that in the framework of the rulers of this world, the great ones of this world. When they extend mercy, we're in trouble. So then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, see how merciful I am? See how gracious I am? I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him, so that you might know how merciful I am. What a wonderful ruler I am. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And this is a perfect picture of how the rulers of the world view people. They are just pawns to be used for their own benefit or purposes, for their own pleasure or agenda, or if they can't have their own way, Matthew 27, 24. Same scene, Pilate is still going back and forth with the rulers of the Jews. He's presented Jesus as the man. He's shown his merciful uh, execution here. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, did you catch that? He was gaining nothing. There's nothing in this for me. He does the following. Could I have my slaves up here, please? Did I do a good pilot? 
when he saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it. You see to it. You see, this is domination. They wash the hands, and it becomes your fault. Divorce, abandon, beat or abuse them, and it will always be the fault of someone else. See what you made me do? If you just shut up, if you would just, if you, if you, if you, But thank God the water from the pitcher finds its way to the basin. Remember Jesus said in Mark 10:43, "But it shall not be so among you." Then he goes on to say this, "But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the son of man came not to be served" but to serve. You see, the servant will always choose the basin. John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, When the devil had already entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Did you hear that? Did you hear that sentence? When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from the supper. I hope I did a better Jesus than I did a Pilate. He rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it about his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, listen to this, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I want you to look at this story closely, my friends. Do you hear what's being said here? Jesus knew. Jesus knew the devil was in Judas. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him with a kiss. Jesus knew what that betrayal would lead to, the pain, the suffering, the scourging, the mocking, the beatings, and the death on the cross. Jesus knew. And he got on his knees and took the basin and washed the filth and the crap off of Judas's feet, the man who was about to betray him, and he knew it. And he could have washed his hands of Judas. He could have done that, but he washed his feet. And in washing his feet, I believe he was trying to reach his heart trying to wash the pain and the shame and all that Judas would endure that would drive Judas to commit suicide and spend eternity in hell. You see, this is a king. This is a ruler. A ruler of superior quality with a towel as his royal robe and a basin as his scepter. He rules over his own with love. His primary interest and motivation is the well-being of those he serves, and his heart's desire is to influence them towards life and life more abundant. This, my friends, is our king. Then there is the cup. The reality is that for Jesus, the cup was always in the forefront. It gets pushed to the last for our sake. Remember the conversation we started with in Mark 10:42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, 
you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Well, I want to look back a few verses to the start of the conversation in Mark 10:32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And I want you to remember that phrase whenever you see it in the scriptures, in the gospels. Going up to Jerusalem meant more than going up a steep inclined hill. And I got to tell you, the picture on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is pretty steep. But what that meant to Jesus was paying the price, walking right into the will of God, knowing of the suffering of what he was about to go through. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, can you imagine walking with a really close friend, a group of buddies, you know, walking up to Jerusalem, up this steep hill, and all of a sudden the leader of the group turns and says, listen, when we get there, this is what's going to happen. What would you say? There's a right turn here. (laughs) Jericho is over there, right? I mean, are you sure you want to go there? Why would you want to do that? I don't know if I want to go up there with you. I don't want to see that. I mean, there'd be something going on that would say to this guy, listen, I hear you. I I want to respond to that, but this is really big, you know. Watch, Watch how they respond. This blows my mind. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Uh, Are we on the same page here? (laughs) You walking with another group? I mean, come on. Somebody's got ears, but they're not hearing. See, but isn't that what we do? I want what I want, and that isn't, I don't want that. Let me tell you what I want. Give me what I want. And we do that to God. You be careful with your prayers. You might get what you pray for. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know what's in store. You haven't been listening. You haven't been paying attention. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Hey, we can handle a pitcher. Some of us do real well with a basin. We know how to serve as long as it's serving in the things we like to serve. 
Just let me do the things I like to do, and I'll serve you till the kingdom comes. I'll be happy, fat, and serving, right? Don't take me out of my comfort zone. Don't offer me the cup. The cup is costly. It will cost you everything. Everything. So costly that Jesus could barely bring himself to drink from it himself. In Luke twenty-two forty-one, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the cup. This is the cup. But as our king, he also understood John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that someone, somebody, lay down his life for his friends. That's the cup. And can I say to you today, <laughs> he loves you. He most certainly loves you. And his love for us is known because he took the cup. Not for himself, not for his father. He took the cup for us. The cup was our cup. What he had to drink was our stuff. It belonged to us, not to him. He was in the world, but he was of no sin. The world had nothing in him. It was all our stuff in that cup. You see, the cup has always been the hinge point of history. God's mysterious way of defeating the kingdoms of this world and dismantling powers and principalities. When all the kingdoms of this world have been overtaken by the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then there'll be no need of a pitcher. There'll be no domination. There'll be no abusive rulership because he'll be seated and ruling and reigning in the earth. And when the kingdom of God has made all things new and all things have been restored to their original glory, when all tears and sorrow and all crying and pain and shame have passed away, then the function of the basin will cease also. But the cup, the cup is eternal. Listen to Jesus in Mark 14, 23. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We will drink from a new cup. A cup of blessing in the presence of the king of kings in the kingdom that shall know no end. The cup endures forever. 
So I thought it would be good today, especially as some of us are heading over to Israel, into the Middle East, that we would gather around the cup together as a body of believers. And as you come and you look at this bread, these matzah crackers that are bruised and they look kind of beat up and pierced through, and he held that up and he said, this is my body. Jeremy, come on up. Remember the price he paid. When you take the cup with that grape juice in it, he said, this is my blood. A new and everlasting covenant. And someday, we're going to sit down at the table of the Lamb. And we're going to drink anew from his cup once again. But until then, he said, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you come together, do this in remembrance of me.